All right. Um, so if you need a Bible, you can get one. And while, while they're passing those out, you can look up Deuteronomy chapter 7. Um, but before we turn there, I'm going to read a testimony to you. This is somebody who came to Christ uh, as a young man. <clears throat> He's writing to an evangelist. Uh, he started working as a teenager, and so he says, My first boss brought me to church. I cried to think of the suffering of Jesus. I felt the love of God in my heart, but I didn't recognize what it was. But later, some other boys at work made fun of me because I didn't do the things that they did. And their jabs tempted me, and finally I started to hang out with them, sleeping around with girls and drinking a lot. I would feel guilty and then make a resolution to stop. But bad company led me back to the same bad behavior. <clears throat> a few years later, I moved away to try to start over, but I got into worse trouble than before. Then one day I met a young man in a bar whose conscience bothered him, and he was determined to go to church, so I went with him. One night, you, the evangelist, were there, and you spoke on justification by faith alone. The sermon was comforting though I had never heard anything like it before. I saw it was right, so I went home and prayed. And I prayed that if what was preached was true, I could experience forgiveness for my sins. But I was afraid to ask, for I thought it presumptuous to claim that my sins were forgiven. And then I thought, wait, this sermon was from the Bible, which must be true, because God never lies. Yet something whispered to me that the Bible's not true. This frightened me, so I wavered back and forth, having an argument in my own mind. Later, I went back to church, and you preached again. By the grace of God, you spoke like no one I had ever heard before. I found myself condemned under your words by my sins. I deserved to be sent to hell. And as you preached, you told me all that I ever did. I wanted to talk to you, but I felt so ashamed of myself. All the rest of the day, I was restless. God put into my mind to take communion, but I felt unfit for it. The Bible said, we have to forgive our enemies. I prayed that God would reveal my sins to me, and he brought to mind some that I had committed years ago, but at the time had never thought were sinful. Now I could see how terrible they were. I wanted to forgive my enemies, and God enabled me to do so. Then I went forward for communion and took the bread and wine with a trembling hand and much fear. Later, the devil tempted me to curse God and Jesus, and I cried and prayed. Then the devil so suggested me to curse God that I thought I had already done it. This drove me to Christ as a sinner, for I had nothing to bring to God but to plead for mercy. I was even tempted to commit suicide, but I prayed for the Lord to take the temptation away. Then the devil fled from me. I examined myself against the Ten Commandments, and I found that I had broken all of them in a spiritual sense, and I deserved to go to hell. I had nothing to trust but the blood of Jesus and asked God to forgive me and give me grace. And something came to my heart like a dart in one moment, and I was melted by tears and tears of love. I found that I loved God more than words could express. Joy lasted with me continuously for three weeks. I couldn't help breaking out into praises. Some people thought I was crazy. Over the next year and a half, I was pressed by the Holy Spirit to go back to my friends and declare to them what the Lord had done for me. I've never gone back to the old sins, but recently had lustful and unclean dreams that I'm ashamed to mention. 
I prayed, determined not to get up until God forgave my sin and gave me power over temptation. Glory to his name, he heard my prayer, and I found a sweet calmness in my soul ever since. <clears throat> Actually, I modernized the language. This was written in 1742. <laughs> and by... Um, <clears throat> Uh, actually, he wasn't just working a regular job. He was apprenticed at age 12. <laughs> so I changed a couple of details to make it sound like it happened yesterday. But it's, it could have been yesterday, except for some of those few details. Oh, and the spelling was atrocious, so it was really <laughs> took a while to read through. But <clears throat> I condensed from six pages down to that. Um, he was writing to John Wesley. John Wesley preached a lot about holiness. You can see this young man's life was really transformed. All, everything about him was changed. And uh, John Wesley wrote something very, I think, insightful. Um, this is a quote. He says, Take no less, oops, go back. Take no less for his religion than the faith that worketh by love, all inward and outward holiness. Be not content with any religion which does not imply the destruction of all the works of the devil, that is, of all sin. We know weakness of understanding and a thousand infirmities will remain while this corruptible body remains, but sin need not remain. This is that work of the devil which the Son of God was manifested to destroy in this present life, he is able, he is willing to destroy it now in all that believe in him. Do not distrust his power or his love. <clears throat> and we all know we still struggle against sin, but the fact is, the Bible teaches very clearly, the Holy Spirit gives us power. So we don't have to sin. We're not required to do so. God gives us the power, and he calls us to a holy life. <clears throat> now we're going to look at our text. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 11. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them giving your sons, uh, your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their ashram, burn their carved images with fire. For you are a chosen a holy people to the Lord your God. <clears throat> you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number 
than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the command and statutes and rules that I command you today. Okay, so I'm going to start out with the good news that God loves us. And then I'm going to talk a little bit more about the command that he gives to um, to uh, to destroy the, the, those peoples and then um, not have any mercy because that takes a, a lot more explanation. So we'll spend some time on that and then we'll talk about what underlies that. Why is it important? What does it tell us about God? And then from understanding that about God, we can then build back up and see how it applies to the gospel message itself and then to our own lives. So first of all, it talks about God's love here. The Lord set his love on you and chose you. God loves those he chose. He didn't choose the Canaanites. He chose the Israelites. And the interesting thing is it says, the Lord set his love on you because the Lord loves you. God loves because he loves. And that's not some kind of a circular reasoning. He's not trying to reason with us. He's, he's making a statement that really emphasizes the fundamental nature of it. God is who he is. God loves because he loves. There's no underlying reason behind it other than that's who he is. God loves us. He loves us because he loves us. And that's really good news. Then we have the command. You must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. For a lot of us, that's kind of a a shock. The question was, why is it a shock? On the one hand, we have an innate sense, we have a fundamental sense in our mind that we can't put them ourselves in their shoes. It wouldn't be right for us to do the things that they were doing. And that's true, because Jesus did not delegate execution of his judgment to his children. So from the time of Jesus onward, that's not our job. It's not our role. <clears throat> On the other hand, if we're thinking, God gave this commandment, how could God do that? What's up with God? Then there's something in our mind that we have to deal with because we know God is right. So how could he do it? And what is it telling us about God? But before we do that, let me go on and and talk about uh, a little bit more about 
what the command means. Actually, before we talk about what the command means, I just mentioned briefly, you know, a lot of times people, you'll hear people when you talk to them about the Bible and about God, they'll say, well, I don't believe in God of the Old Testament because he's cruel and he's harsh and he does things like command those things. But actually, if you read the Bible more carefully, you realize that in the New Testament, there's a lot of talk about judgment as well. So God hasn't changed. It's not something new. And um, <clears throat> there's a, an essay written, famous essay written by a, a famous atheist named Bertrand Russell called Why I'm Not a Christian. And he said, there's one very serious there's one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. You know, you hear things out there in the world. When we talk to people, we get lots of feedback. We hear people saying, I don't believe that kind of God, or that, you know, we get ridiculed for being harsh and judgmental or whatever it is, we have to understand that is, <clears throat> that's the world talking. But um, what, what does the Bible have to say? What, who is God really? So what does the command say? It says, um, <clears throat> it says what, it means what it says. It told them to kill everybody in certain towns. Um, there were a few exceptions. God basically told them each case what to do. But, and then there were other peoples that they weren't to, to harm at all. Uh, Lot's and Esau's descendants in Deuteronomy 2. And they made treaties with people who came from far away but didn't live in that area. But other than that, it meant what it said. And there's an example um, <clears throat> the story of Joshua uh, in, the, in the Battle of Jericho, Joshua chapter 6. And if you've taught Sunday school for any number of years, I'm sure you've taught the story. You know, you have the kids line up and they, they blow their little trumpets and they march around the table, right? So the, the, the story goes, the nation of Israel, the army marches around the city one time, and they blow the trumpets, they don't say anything, they go back to their camp. Second day, they do the same thing, march around the city one time, blow their trumpets, go back to the camp. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, all same thing. March around one time, blow the trumpets, go back to the camp. But on the seventh day, <clears throat> they march around the city seven times, and then there's a final, they give a final trumpet blast, and they shout. And when they shout, the walls of the city collapse, and the army of Israel runs into the city and burns everything, destroys the people, and this is what it says. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with a sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. <clears throat> There's a similar command. It's not about the Canaanites. This is about the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. The, um, 
the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, tell Saul that he needs to um, destroy the Amalekites because of the bad things that they've done to Israel in the past. And so Saul doesn't really do what he's supposed to do. He, he goes to attack the Amalekites. They have the, the battle. But in the end, he captures the king and keeps the king. And then he allows his soldiers to take plunder. And Samuel hears about this from the Lord. He goes to confront Saul. Saul's kind of denying it and waffling and he doesn't want to admit it. And so Samuel says, what's this bleeding of sheep I hear? And Saul's still trying to deny. So finally, Samuel said to Saul, stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned to me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Gag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and the arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So, we see clearly what it says. Now, what does it tell us about God? Well, we've heard what the world says that it says about God. They think that he's cruel, but that's not, we know that's not the case. What does it say? First of all, it tells us that God has the right to judge. We don't. Even Israel didn't judge. Israel was delegated the role of responsibility as executioner, but they were not to make the determination. That was, that was God's role alone. Um, you know, we, we used to read, I, I would read to my kids every night before we went, they went to bed. And that was from the time they were little. So when they were five, six years old, we were reading the new international readers version, NIRV to them. And it just takes the NIV and chops it into short choppy sentences. The kids can understand better. So as we got to passages like this, and I would, every, every day when we read to them, I would ask them a couple questions, have a little discussion just to get, make sure that they understood and, and knew how to apply it to their lives. <clears throat> and so I asked them, just, what do you think? And they said, yeah, it makes sense. You know, God is dealing with people who are sinning, that he's doing what he's supposed to do. So for them, when they were little, they didn't have all this baggage that a lot of us have as adults. We kind of tend to think 
something's wrong. Well, how could God do that? <clears throat> they didn't think that way at all. So I learned something from them, and I, I kind of moved on. I didn't want to raise questions that they didn't have. <clears throat> um, part of it may be because, you know, when they're little, they don't have a full understanding of what death means. But a lot of it has to do with that innate sense of justice that we have. Genesis 15, verses 15 to 16, 400, more than 400 years earlier, God spoke to Abraham and he said, You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, that is 400 years later, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God's been delaying the judgment for over 400 years, waiting for their sin to get to the point where it has to be dealt with. This is actually God is being very, very patient, very slow. <clears throat> this is a quote from John Calvin, his, his commentary on Deuteronomy 2, uh, 7-2. <clears throat> and I thought this was really insightful. Um, maybe only John Calvin could write with this kind of boldness. He says, Those who think that there was cruelty in this command usurp too great authority in respect to him who is the judge of all. After God had shown his mercy for four centuries, and this mercy had increased both their audacity and madness so that they had not ceased to provoke his wrath, surely it was no act of cruelty. And hence appears the foul and detestable perversity of the human intellect. We are indignant if he delays punishment. Our zeal accuses him of slackness. Yet, when he comes forth as the avenger of guilt, we call him cruel, yet his justice will always absolve him. When he had given this commission to his people, it was not unreasonable that he should forbid them to pity those whom he had appointed for destruction. For what can be more preposterous than for men to compete with God in mercy? Away then with all excessive boldness, whereby we would presumptuously restrict God's power to the puny measure of our reason, and rather let us learn reverently to regard those works of his whose cause is concealed from us than wantonly criticize him. <clears throat> There's a lot mouthful there, so I'll try to paraphrase it again, right? Um, God's waited for 400 years to bring about this judgment. More than 400 years. And during that time, the people of Canaan have been sacrificing their children to their idols. They've been doing every possible imaginable and unimaginable wicked thing. So God has been holding off, holding off, waiting mercifully waiting to see if there might be repentance, but there wasn't. So the time for judgment came. <clears throat> and he point, points out a line of reasoning here, which I think is actually common to the book of Habakkuk. So let me just quickly summarize. There's a little, um, a little prophet 
not a little prophet, not a little guy, but a little book. <clears throat> At near the end of the Old Testament, named Habakkuk is three short chapters. And Habakkuk says, he complains to God. He says, God, look at the sin of Israel. It's horrible. It's terrible. God, you are holy and just. You cannot tolerate evil. What are you going to do about it? I, I'm pleading with you. I'm waiting to see what you're going to respond. God says, I, I, I have a response. I'm sending the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to come and destroy your, your, um, your temple. They're going to destroy your homes. They're going to take you off into captivity. You're going to go to a faraway land, and they're going to be very cruel, and they're going to do terrible and sinful things. And Habakkuk is puzzled. So he responds back to God. He says, God, how can this be? You're sending a nation that's much more wicked than Israel to judge us. How could you do that? That doesn't make any sense. And God responds back to Habakkuk. I know they are harsh, they're cruel, they're sinful. The Babylonians have... I gave them the responsibility to carry out my judgment. They took it way further than what I had authorized them to do. They had no mercy. And then they became proud and basically worshipped their own abilities. And he says, I will judge them too. And I will annihilate the Babylonians. And so... At, by this point, Habakkuk has had a, a vision of, of the Lord, and he's really amazed. He's in, he's in awe. He sits silently before God, and then he praises God and says how wonderful and how great he is. And then at the conclusion, he says, though the fig tree doesn't bud, though the olive crop fails, though there are no grapes on the vine, yet I will rejoice in my God. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to go on the heights. So the argument of Habakkuk is very similar to what Calvin is saying here, right? It's on one hand, if God doesn't judge, he doesn't do anything, people complain and they say, what's wrong? There's all this sin and the evil in the world. God isn't doing anything. Is there really a God after all? But on the other hand, if God finally does say the time is up, it's time to judge. Then we turn around and say, God is cruel. God is harsh. How could he do that? We can't have it both ways. And it's better for us if we are humble, we acknowledge that God knows how to manage the universe a lot better than we do. So we leave judgment in his hands. <clears throat> the second thing that it tells us about God is that he's holy. It's not so much that it says in the text, God is holy, therefore this. But if we don't understand God's holiness, we can't understand that commandment. God is absolutely pure, unadulterated goodness. God is pure and holy and perfect. There can be no evil in his presence. God doesn't tolerate Evil. Revelation 4, 
describes God and his holiness in such a, a vivid way. So I'm just going to read Revelation 4, starting with verse 2. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head, on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And it goes on to give the same praise in chapter 5 for Jesus. That's the holiness of God. God is pure light. He's whiter than snow, purer than gold. Let's see if I can. There we go. 1 John 1 5. This is the message we've heard from him. And declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And God is holy. There is only light in him, but God calls us to be holy. His people have to be holy too, or otherwise they can't be his people. Psalm 51, 7, we heard from Tolu a few weeks back. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. That's the image of God's perfection. It's whiter than snow. It's purer than pure gold. So we have kind of to represent God, the image of the pure gold lampstand and the pure gold table in the temple. Yet you can imagine as pure gold as you can possibly get, 99.999%, God is still more pure. Jesus told his disciples, a person who has has had a bath needs only to wash his feet and his whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. So through Jesus, we're made clean. No matter how clean you can imagine, even the most clean thing we have on the face of the earth, a class four clean room with one particle at every four cubic feet, God is cleaner than that. That's Intel's advertisement, by the way. (laughs) 
And then you have the laundry commercial advertisement. <laughs> so imagine you have this big red stain on a white shirt and you put it through the laundry and it still looks like that. What are you going to do? You're going to throw it away or you'll use it just in the backyard for working on the yard. <clears throat> but that's the way it is with sin. We've got to get rid of it. You know, we had a number of years ago, there was this horrible stench in our house. Somewhere an animal had died under the floor or behind the wall. We could never find it. So for several weeks, it was just unbearable. The whole house was hideous. And even though we never found it, other people who found the little animal, they discovered it's just a tiny little mouse can do all of that. Last week, I've been wrestling, struggling with uh, sickness. You know, first I had a uh, discomfortable, uncomfortable intestinal feeling, and then I got a headache, and then I got cold. I felt chills. I couldn't keep warm all day long. I was just covered up. I t- used electric blanket at night. I was still shivering and everything, and I was so exhausted I could hardly walk. And finally, it attacked my sinuses. Well, that little virus is so small, you can't even see it with an optical microscope. And yet it can wreak havoc with us. Sin is like that. You might think it's a little small thing, but it's not. It's horrible, and it keeps us from God. That is the picture. And so we come now to Joshua chapter 7. So the story of Joshua defeating Jericho, it's not over yet. Because chapter 7, Achan has taken some of the plunder. This was supposed to be all dedicated to God, so anything that couldn't be burned was supposed to go to the, um, <clears throat> to the tabernacle. But Achan stole some of it and hid it under his tent, buried it in the ground. They didn't know that. Israel didn't know that. So they went up to their next battle. They said, oh, there's this little town of Ai. We'll send a a group of people up to Ai to attack them. Maybe we only need 3,000 people. They sent the 3,000 men, and the people came out, and they were attacked viciously, and they struck down about 36 Israelites as they ran away with their tail between their legs. And Joshua, he knows something's wrong. And so he's, he's terrified. He, go, he falls with his face before God, and he starts to plea with him. And God says, the Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And so they went to find out where the sin was. They inquired of the Lord and chose, God chose the 
um, tribe of Judah. And then they inquired, and God chose the clan that Achan was in, and then the family that Achan was in, and finally he was selected. And he confessed his sin, and they stoned him to death, along with his family. So it sounds harsh, but God is purifying his people, making them holy so that he can go with them. Otherwise, they'll all be lost. <clears throat> got to throw away the sin, the, the dirty shirt, the stinky mouse. Get rid of the virus. So, what about the New Testament? We know clearly that we are not God's executioners. Our role has changed. Jesus told his disciples to put away their weapons. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. There is a sense in which God delegates um, judgment to the church, but it's, very, it's a much more limited sense. right? So you see it in, in Paul when there was a, a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, which is a disgusting thing. And he said, kick him out of the church. But for the purpose that that person would come to repentance and then be restored. So it wasn't even to destroy him. But it does say purge the evil person from among you. And it's a similar concept. So our role has changed, but God has not changed. God has not changed. God is the same. Take, for example, the parable of the weeds. <clears throat> the parable of the weeds, there's a landowner. He has a field with wheat growing in the field. And then at night, an enemy comes along and sows weeds into his field. So the worker from the field, he comes and approaches the landowner and he says, I don't know what's happened. There's all these weeds here. And the owner says, an enemy did this. So the worker says, what should I do? Should I go and uproot all the, you know, pull up all the weeds? And the landowner says, no. Let them all grow together. And at the harvest time, the angels will come and gather all the weeds and the wheat together and separate the the wheat to be put in my father's storehouse, and the weeds will be burned in an unquenchable fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when Jesus explains the parable in verses 36 to 43, he says, the enemy is Satan, the weeds are those who do evil. So now we understand the parable, and in fact it tells us two very important things. One is, Yes, God has the right to judge, and at the end, he's going to judge and separate the wheat from the weeds. The other thing it tells us, though, God lets them all grow up together all this time. Now it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. He's patient, and he's merciful, waiting for more people to come to repentance because he doesn't want to judge right away. So God delays the judgment because he's merciful.
Parable of the net. Same thing, just a lot shorter summary. The, there's a big dragnet. The angels come, gather up the, the fish in the dragnet and separate the good fish from the bad fish. The bad fish are thrown out where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In fact, that same phrase is repeated six times in the Gospel of Matthew. It, it means that, yes, God is still in the business of judging. <clears throat> and when Jesus comes back the next time, that's what he's going to come for. And we see a, a, another example, Ananias and Sapphira. They sold their property and they gave part of the money to the church and they gave, held part of it back, kept it in their pocket. And they, they could have just done that, but they did that and then they said, we gave it all to the church. So they lied about the part that they kept for themselves. And God judged them and struck them dead on the spot. They were held accountable for what they did. <clears throat> Again, it wasn't the church that did the judging. It was God. Well, <clears throat> why is this all applicable? Why does it matter? Because the gospel starts from the same assumption, that God is holy. God is holy, and only the holy, only those who are perfectly holy can enter his presence and live. And God is love. We talked about love at the beginning. He chooses people, and he loves because he loves. God longs for people to live in his presence forever. But people are sinful. We're not holy. So we can't be with God. So what, how is God going to resolve this problem? Well, it's in Christ. Jesus died. He paid the price for our sins. He, through him, if we put our trust in him and we believe in him, we're made to be holy so that we can enter into God's presence and enjoy him forever. But we have to repent in order to, in order to enter in. We have to believe. We have to put our trust in Him rather than in ourselves. Because if we trust in ourselves, we're left with our sins and we're no, we're not holy. So we have to be cl made clean by Him. <clears throat> uh, before I go on, you know, you see through this that God's justice and his love, they're complementary. They're not contradictory. It's not God against God. God is both loving and just. His justice protects those he loves. God's not like a bad teacher that lets the bullies run wild in the classroom. We all sense a need for justice. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. That's why he was so distressed when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he knew what he was going to be take, taking on himself. <clears throat> well, now we come to false concepts of God, right? <clears throat> Oftentimes, <clears throat> when we share the gospel with people, we find 
something holds them back. They don't understand. They don't get it. They just, they're not interested. Whatever the case is, oftentimes the reason is because they don't have a concept with, of God that allows them to even understand what we're talking about. That's why when <clears throat> I, lo- I love our Sunday school class because we teach the kids stories from the Bible. And the stories from the Bible illustrate who he is in an oftentimes more clear way than you could do just by making statements about God. So each time we tell a story to the kids on Sunday morning, they get another aspect of God that they understand a little better. So they're seeing God from all different angles and different facets, and they start to understand and get to know him over, over the years. I was really impressed with the Sunday school curriculum we have now because they actually, i got to give them credit, they actually had us teach the story of the sin of Achan, Joshua 7, to the kids in the classroom. And, and that really, you know, it's, it says they're not hiding anything. They're dealing with the entirety of, this, of what the Bible teaches. And that's good because then the kids can understand not just that God loves them. Yes, they should understand that but also that God is just. They need to understand both. <clears throat> See, if people don't understand God's love and his grace, then they start to think of God as a mechanical and cold and distant, and they don't have a personal relationship with him. Their God is like a God of karma, and that's not good. So we have stories in the Bible to help to convey to people the deep and rich love of God, the amazing love of God. For example, the story of the prodigal son. And Luke hasn't, I mean, Nick hasn't gotten there in Luke yet, but when he does, I'm sure he's going to have a wonderful sermon on that. But that story, you want to hear it over and over. Why? Because you want to be able to tell it to other people. When they don't understand God's love, this is a good story to, to turn to. You know, the one, the man has two sons, and his older son, he lives at home. The younger son goes to the father, and he says, I want my inheritance, and I want it now. And so the father, rather than saying, get out of here, what's wrong with you, kid? He says, okay, and he gives it to him. And he goes off, and he squanders all that on wild and loose living, and he runs out of money. And now he has nothing to eat, so he goes out and gets a job feeding pigs. And while he's feeding the pigs and he's thinking, I, I want to eat just what those pigs have, finally it comes to his mind, he comes to his senses and realizes, even if I were a servant in my father's house, I'd be better off than what I am now. And so he humbles himself, he makes his decision, he goes back to his father's household and on the way, when it's, he's still a long way off, his father sees him and he runs to him and embraces him. And he's so excited for him and he throws a big party for him to celebrate his return. Because his son had been lost, he had been dead, and now he's alive and he's found. And so the, young, the older brother, <clears throat> he's not happy because, you know, here he's been at home he says, slaving away for my father all these years. 
and nobody ever threw a party for me. And the old, so the older <clears throat> brother, he's not happy. He and the and the father comes out to him and says, well, "You should come and join the party." Invites him to come in and join, and to celebrate with him, because my younger son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost. He's found. And that really, really illustrates the love of God. How amazing it is. I don't know of any better story than that, but uh, Jesus tells a lot of good stories. So <clears throat> then we have the story that, or that, yeah, an illustration at least that tells us that God is just. For example, the parable of the weeds, or if you talk about Joshua 6 and 7, or Deuteronomy 7 that we talked about. There's all these things can convey the the holiness of God. Or you look at Revelation 4. <clears throat> but if people miss the holiness of God, then they think that God is cruel. And then they they go from that point and then they start making up another God for themselves. They make up a God who believe they believe allows everybody to go to heaven, even though it's not true. Because if God allows everybody to go to heaven, then what did Jesus die for? It doesn't make any sense. That's not the God of the Bible. <clears throat> There's a, um, a book out, it's called The Devil's Redemption, and it was the 2018 book award winner for the Gospel Coalition in the area of academic theology. It's kind of a heavy read, it's two volumes, and uh, a, lot, a lot of things in there. <clears throat> and even this quote, before I read it, I have to define a couple of terms. One is, uh, <clears throat> the term, there's a term he uses in there he calls esoteric. And when we say esoteric, we kind of mean, oh, this is something a little bizarre and weird, right? But his term is a more of a technical term. It it's means something that uh, you have secret knowledge for, sort of like the practices of the, uh, the Freemasons or the Mormons. They have their own little secret society type things. And um, their belief systems came basically from Greek philosophy and Gnosticism, and then they, over the years, they mixed in some other things from magic and occultism. And uh, <clears throat> the other term he uses there is universalism. That, that's the idea that everybody gets to go to heaven eventually. Well, what is the consequence of that? <clears throat> the great irony of Christian universalism lies in its eclipse of grace. The effort to extend grace to all has repeatedly ended up compromising or even eliminating the notion of grace. What seems to be all grace turns out on inspection to be no grace. Esoteric theologies have trouble accounting for a particular people of God, for particular divine actions in history, and for a particular Savior. And he goes on another another quote. He says, "The issue of final salvation for all, or final salvation for some, 
does not stand alone, but is intertwined with virtually everything that Christianity has to say about God's love and justice, human nature, sin, freedom, Jesus' life, Jesus' death on the cross, the Holy Spirit, the nature of the church, and Jesus' return. How much, theologically speaking, is at stake in the debate on universalism? The answer is everything. So when we talk to people around us, a lot of times you'll hear people basically have made up their own God. And they'll have their own concept of who God is. And then, you know, whatever we say doesn't make sense to them. They don't make sense to us. And a lot of times it's because, you know, ever since some 300 years ago, people have been building on that starting in Germany. They've been building these universalist ideas because they lacked the fundamental understanding of God's holiness. It led them away from God to the point now if we want to lead them back to be close to God again, we have to deal with their false concept of who he is. See, theology is not a place for creativity. Worship is, but not theology. There was a a man named Kohlberg in 1710. He wrote, The unauthorized presumption in taking the office of judge is the mother of all mistakes in theology. Jesus said it really well. He said, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So if we want to understand about God and heaven, if we want to build our theology, we've got to get it from Jesus. Jesus is the one who came from God. He knows all about it. But if we try to build something else from our own imagination, it will end up being a disaster. The only way to revive the church is for a renewed appreciation of God's holiness. God needs to be at the center of our lives. He has to be absolutely all in all for us. Well, I couldn't resist putting my daughter's artwork into into this. but uh, <clears throat> So you see the people coming into the kingdom. Uh, of course, they have to repent and come through Jesus, right? So you have Jesus on the uh, cross there, and you can't really see the red color here very well, but it's coming down into the communion cup. And then there's come and all the different languages. <clears throat> so how do we get to God? Why did Jesus have to die? That was the question, right? Only the holy can enter God's presence and live. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. God loves us and he made the way for us to get to, to him. That means we have to be made holy. And it's in Christ's blood that we're washed clean and made holy so we can enter in. There it is. So now we come back to that same command again. 
hopefully we have a better understanding. We don't want to be like uh, Thomas Jefferson, right? He had his Bible all cut up into little pieces because he took out everything that he didn't want to believe. That's not how we believe because we know that everything God says is true then we have to understand the Bible in its entirety, even the parts that are hard for us. God is right when he judges. And God is holy. And God's people must be holy. So now that we understand who God is, hopefully this verse makes sense to us. We may not be comfortable with it, but at least we should understand it. Not allow the world to dictate to us how we believe. So, with that, we come to our application. Our loved ones can't be close to God unless they're made holy, but they can be made holy through Jesus Christ. They have to repent. The kingdom of God it naturally multiplies. It grows. <clears throat> That's why in the parable of the sower, Jesus says this, this good seed, the good seed uh, of the soil that falls on the good soil, it bears fruit, multiplies 30, 60, 100 fold. And the mustard seed starts as a tiny little seed and grows into this big plant that the birds can make nests in. The kingdom of God is always growing. It's always spreading because why? We understand because of God's holiness, people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we carry that out. And... God loves, fundamentally, he loves because he loves. And we love because he loves. Jesus said, be sons of your heavenly father. So be like him. Love your enemies. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. And finally, another one of my daughter's This is uh, the bride of Christ with the new Jerusalem going up to heaven. The bride is holy. God's people have to be made holy and only in Christ. So we need to be holy as he is holy, just like it says in Leviticus 11. That means our love for God needs to be pure. God should be everything to us. All of our life should be revolving around him. It doesn't make sense to mess around with all the secondary things, except that, you know, we have, to, we have to make a living, we have to live, we have to earn, you know, those things. It's, it's okay, it's fine. But the thing is, all of those things should be still submitted to God, everything under God, because he's holy. We need to be holy and purge the sin from our life. Jesus put it another way. He said, be perfect as your heavenly Father was perfect from the same passage in Matthew 5. 
where he tells us to love our enemies. So, with that, think about your application. Take the gospel to those who need it. Love because he loves. And be holy because he's holy. And I leave it with you. Father, we pray that you would make us to be holy. Help us to be your children, sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Make us to be like you. Make us to um, help us to understand your word. And help us to uh, apply it to our lives. And help us to understand the gospel deeply. And, and uh, Father, now that you've made us holy in Christ and pure and able to enter into your presence, let us be faithful as your servants. In Jesus' name, amen.